Hello, I am Ariel Munafo. And I am Moshe Ferber. And this is the Silver Lining Podcast. The podcast about security engineering. Welcome everyone, another episode of Silver Lining Podcast. And uh, with me as usual, uh, Moshe Ferber. How are you, Moshe? Very good, thank you. Good morning, Ariel. Good to see you. Good morning, good morning. We are still uh, fighting the coronavirus and the Delta right now, but uh, hopefully we will win. Uh, <laughs> For you, Moshe. Okay, so uh, this morning when we're going to talk about incident response and with us is a very old friend and one of the most interesting professionals in the Hebrew, uh, in the Israeli community. Ariel, are you, uh, sorry, uh, Omri, are you there? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> ah, uh, great to see you. Um, so- happy, uh, happy, happy quarantine to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh, Omri Segev uh, Moyal, he has been doing information security for a very long, long time and to, uh, these days he is specializing in incident response and we're going to have a very interesting episode with him. Uh, but first of all, Omri, please uh, introduce yourself. Well, hi everyone, so Omri Segev Moyal, I'm CEO and uh, co-founder at Profero. Uh, Profero is a company which specializes in remote uh, and rapid incident response. Uh, we have teams all over the world, uh, stretching all the way from Okinawa, New Zealand, US, South America, uh, and of course, Israel as well. Uh, we deal with the most uh, interesting attacks and the uh, largest customers and smaller ones, small customers. Uh, and it's, uh, it's always busy around here lately. Yeah, <laughs> always busy in the cyber area is uh, it's not going to change. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, uh, gave, uh, COVID gave a really interesting boost uh, to the industry. Okay, so uh, let's dive in. T- tell, us, tell me a little bit about what it is like running an incident response company. I mean, I, you have customers from all over the world. You have incidents coming at very different hours. Everything is urgent. I mean, how do you do... I mean, how do you do the shift management? How do you uh, provide 24-7 support? How do you connect your customers? This is all uh, really new to me. Cool. So uh, um, a bit about my background before uh, Profero was uh, one of the co-founders and head of research at Minerva Labs, uh, an endpoint security uh, software uh, also uh, with uh, uh, people all over the world. And what we re- I realized back then, around 2017, 2018 is that it's good that there is products in the industry and there's many products not just Minerva uh, you can speak about CrowdStrike if you speak about the endpoints and in the one you can speak about uh, uh, network detections Honeypot there's a lot of good product industry but even then where um, there is an incident and I mean major incident not one endpoint or one fake email that comes when there's a really major crisis in the organizations the vast majority, and I'm speaking about above 90% organizations, are simply not ready to handle this kind of incidents. And it's coming from the mere fact that they're just not doing it on their daily basis. They have one major incident a year. If they're doing really badly four, uh, and they do it really good one every three or four years. But in the end of the day, when there is a very major incident, they can't really react as they should be. And another thing is that what I realized is the old way was Let's drive to that incident location, fly to the incident location. Let's fly cross-continent to the incident location. At the bare minimum, you're speaking, if, even if 
the incident is somewhere right in front of your door. You're speaking about an hour and a half, two hours from the discovery of the incident till you get people on the working, getting permissions, etc. Uh, and that was even before COVID. Now after COVID, it, it's simply crazy. If, for example, we can even meet right now in you know in the um, in the studio. Uh, so think about that where there is a major incident and you can even bring people on the table on the same table. So in order with this you know changes in the way we should do incident response. First thing when we founded the company, we decided we should have no offices at all. There's no offices, everybody's working from home or you know, some people want to work from WeWork or something like that. We can give them a room, but there is no official office of the company. The second thing is that because we have, and we're utilizing the fact that we have no office, we can actually have people, very qualified people, very mature and, uh, and self-taught people from all over the world. So for example, the third or fourth employee of the company came from New Zealand. If you look at the startups, you know, you look at the first 20 to 30 people from your own country, and only then you're starting to pick up people from all over the world, and it's getting very complicated. You need to open an office, etc. So we just hired the best people from all over the world. The other thing we decided is that the first person to respond should be the person who manages the incident. We looked at some of the corporate hierarchy that there are there. And we decided we should go with something that is very, very bad. I think the only company which have something similar to the way we run things is Palantir. Uh, basically, Palantir have a very flat organization model. There's the CEO, CTO, some VPs, and that's it. Then you pick the right person for the project, and he is the project owner. Um, I know it's changed a bit since they got bigger, but that was the initial start. So we have separated the operational side of the company where you need to take care of employee well, uh, well-being, you need to take care of infrastructure development and the IR services. In the IR services, it's completely flat. The main idea behind it, when you call on an incident, either by cold calling us because you never met us before and you got a good recommendation or you Google for the threat that is new and for some reason prefer a list, an article that says that, hey, we've solved that incident somewhere else, or you one of our retainer programs. I don't want to get into much sales, but uh, we have some retainer programs. The first person to respond is the person who will manage your incident. It's people with over 10 years of experience. They've been managing many incidents before. And the other thing is that instead of working in regions, uh, we work by follow the sun in a GMT or a UTC type of, uh, of regions. So if someone, for example, like to wake up late, it does not necessarily need to work in the time he lives in. He can live in a different time. So let's say plus three hours, plus four hours. So for example, we have people from England, but they usually work in the US East Coast time zone because they just like wake up late. And we have people who like to wake up early in Israel. They work in you know Hong Kong, Singapore uh, time zone, etc. So official time zone started around eight to 9 a.m. of the location. Uh, which is usually, for example, in Israel, um, it's GMT plus three. So the shift in New Zealand, which is 11 hours different, just finishes, etc., and they switch between each other. Uh, very, very well organized. Okay, and and I, have, yeah. I have two questions for you. First of all, I'd like to hear more about the background of the, of the people, I mean, where they're coming from. And the second, uh, um, 
For me, incident response is very much arriving to the scene, pull up a laptop, connect it to, the, to various switches and collect logs. How do you do this remotely? I mean, how do you work? Yeah, so I think we see that approach as the old way. We see that the same as there used to be the people with suits and tie that got replaced by the Silicon Valley people. Um, that's the same way we see the old approach to incident response. Um, in most corporates, especially in the US, also in Israel, the, the need to be on is not just a downfall and which takes time and behavioral. Today, it's even a life risking. You know, uh, it, it's health problem, it's a health hazard. Uh, there's also many security aspects to that, uh, which makes it not the right approach. So basically we've developed in-house technology and also using some third-party tools to enable us to use a cloud infrastructure uh, globally to be deployed in the organizations very fast, rapidly. Um, by the way, with minimum uh, internet usage, we can actually do things pretty slow. If there is a low internet bandwidth, even going back to have uh, you know, like old ADSL routers, etc. like we had with some places in South America. Uh, and we collaborate with the organization that is for some places on site. Um, we probably have some more stories later on uh, when we finish the background of how we actually did it and places where there was no one uh, at the site as well. Uh, but basically we've developed a technology which is built for this type of approach. Okay. The other thing is the main reason we've decided uh, to have no offices is that if you don't on a daily basis work remotely, there's no way you can adjust yourself to, to handle remote incidents. It has to be inherited in everything you do on a daily basis. Yeah, okay, I understand. Okay, so let's dive in into more. No, but, but just before, uh, Moshe, sorry, uh, you asked about yeah, the, pro ahead. the profile of the people that. Uh... Uh, yeah, true. True. Um, so the main profile of the first. A uh, few employees is definitely self-taught, self-managed. We hate micromanagement. Uh, you need to be able to fully manage your day. Uh, you need to be able to work with remote teams. Um, we hate politics, so there's not much place for uh, for this kind of thing, especially because people work from home. You work independently, and you have to be super collaborative. You have to know how to, you know, move the torch when you finish the your day. You have to fully be able to move everything you know, everything you did for the next uh, tier manager. So all the hard work you did is moving to someone else. It means that you, it doesn't necessarily need to look for credit, etc. The other thing is we look with very diverse uh, people, people from different cultures, different from different languages, different from people from different backgrounds. We have people coming from the DevOps, industry that shifted into security and response. We have the uh, all, you know, old school, 8200, people who left the army, people who did Mamram, et cetera, IR only, or people came from SOC or enterprise security and switched to incident response. Uh, we even have some developers that decided, hey, that's it, I wanna do some more action. So we, we actually have people from very, very different type of you know, experience and approach, etc., and it's been working really well for us. Okay, so uh, let's dive in. We uh, mentioned uh, um, we mentioned three different uh, type of incidents that we want to explore. 
uh, with you, uh, all based on the recent uh, experiences. And the first one was the story of a malicious insider. Can you give us a little bit about uh, background about this incident? Yeah, I think this is quite of a, of a, a little worse. So uh, we got a call one day, uh, a cold call actually, and that says uh, there's a company that received a, a soon to be public company at the time. And we received uh, a message that uh, all your uh, repositories, all your code, uh, all of your infrastructure, all of your passwords, everything, with a couple of examples, is going to be released uh, online, leaked to the darknet, you know, all of those fancy words, if you don't pay a ransom. Very typical thing to get, actually. We get a, we, we get a companies which get it. You know, there's a lot of companies who get it. Um, you know, a lot of misconfigurations in the cloud, a lot of stuff that brings attackers to uh, extort, uh, extort companies on the data. Uh, unlike the old enterprise ransomware double extortion where you see encryptions and then an extortion. In a lot of the cloud incidents, you, may, you mostly see extortions right now, not many encryptions, et cetera. Uh, there are some, but not that many. And, you know, we, around, we have our tools dedicated for the cloud. It was Amazon at the time. Uh, we got connected. We started looking at the logs. I think there was around 72 hours or 48 hours before, you know, the demand needed to be answered. And we started to notice a lot of adversarial uh, movement in the organization, unexplained uh, movement. And we started to kind of draft it into a graph. And usually it's really what, what we do most in cloud and enterprises breaches, large scale, lateral movement, et cetera. And usually there's a hotspot. So function zero, some kind of an open infrastructure, open configuration, maybe a GitHub repository with credentials. And then you can see that credentials moving in branches and you can kind of draw the way the attacker moved. And here it was very odd. We had, you know, tens, maybe twenties, you know, hotspots uh, very all over the place. There was no match connection also between them. It's not like someone moved, got a key and then another key, then they got merged. It was just a key, a key, a key, uh, a password, you know, location. It was really, really weird for us. There's like, and also some of the time did not make sense. It means that someone had a grab of the organization. They knew exactly what to, to look at. They knew exactly where to go to. And the other thing was the timing was not right. Like there's no way they managed to get from instance A to B so fast. Like unless they're using some, I don't know, AI I never seen before. It was weird. And we started to like, we started to, to brainstorm about that. And there were a couple of approaches. One that the, the attacker was there before, and it's just like finally unleashing, you know, the last move. And the second was the attacker was there before, is part of the company. Um, and we started to look at. And then we went to uh, something very interesting. We decided to use an approach that is often used by uh, fraud detection, credit card fraud detection. And we started to pinpoint, okay, there's, there's a leaked credential or a password where you might get it. Where was the place it was used? And we started to draw, we put it in an Excel sheet and we started to put, okay, that went, was in this kind of places. This key was in this kind of places. This key was this kind of place. And we started to like to cross out locations and we got to Archivolt, Archivolt, uh, uh, which stores all the keys, etc. And we said, the only place with all of those keys, there was thousands of them. It's not just one or two, but it's a very automatic process. They sit in the Hashi vault. 
And so we started to investigate and we found two very interesting things. Um, one, and I'm, I don't want to speak about public decision still ongoing, but there were very unique artifacts related to the attacker, which actually enable us to understand it's completely inside job. Um, the other thing we could actually pinpoint the person itself, uh, but, and, and the attacker up, you know, it was managed, it was managed internally uh, in, uh, with police as well, but we really wanted to dig deep dive how a single person could have gotten all those keys. And what he did was very interesting. He actually managed, and I don't think he would be able to do that in a full-blown enterprise environment, uh, old-fashioned environment, you know, on-prem environment. Basically what he did, he created a snapshot of the Hashi Vault. He copied that snapshot to a new VM because that VM was heavily monitored, created a new VM, export that it changed the passport, the password of that VM when he opened it, the, the root password, uh, export that VM to Cremo, put an S3 bucket that only him, one of the way we caught him, uh, could have downloaded. Uh, shared that bucket with a different organization he had and then downloaded. So there were no really logs of him downloading and getting alert, opening a bucket, you know, doing things like that. And he also knew the entire environment. So once he got that to his machine, um, also left the logs over there, we were able to track it. Um, he opened the VM, had all the password he needed and everything he needed and just download the whole organization. Now think about it. It's not like it's an inside GitLab or GitHub Enterprises on-prem. It's it's GitHub. You could have downloaded everything. Um, it's uh, it's uh, configurations, Terraforms, and other similar configurations where you can just all the all the juicy stuff of the organizations. And all of that happened with very simple tools like DevOps tools. Everything. There's not that many alerts. Um, we have had, we've completely changed the organization approach to that incident, how you monitor for staff, how you monitor for inside the thread in cloud environment. Uh, we actually have a full blown guide for that. Uh, we're hoping to release in the near future. Uh, needs a few more incident that we won't be stuck with just a few. Uh, but in the end of the day, um, the whole approach of combating cloud incidents is just very, very different from enterprise. The the worst uh, enterprise on-prem. The way most organizations deal with cloud threats today is they take their defense in depth approach and endpoint detection and response approach, and they try to mimic it to the cloud. It just doesn't work like that. It's like trying to fix it with a guide how to fix a Toyota. It's just not the same thing. Um, you need to completely change the way you work. Um, there is a lot of work coming from CISA, uh, and you know the, the Moshe's team and stuff to to really change the incident response in cloud, and there's very good guides for it. But still, most organizations organizations just copy what they know from the on-prem to the cloud. It doesn't work like that. You cannot open your database in a single click in an on-prem environment to the internet if you done it right. If you don't have it completely open, they usually sit behind more than one firewall. In, in, the, in Amazon, you can simply click a, a security group, open it to the wall, and that's it. Your MongoDB can, can be completely open to the cloud, to everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really work yeah. like that in on-prem. 
Yeah, well, uh, um, I, uh, my question to you was how we are cloud incidents are different, but you already answered that uh, in the spirit. And then hopefully one day we can uh, issue uh, together research about uh, how to deal with uh, cloud incidents. What, but that one is more a different... sentence. Yeah, mm -hmm. if I can have. Uh, the, also the forensics approach, it's skyrocketing different when it comes to cloud. In cloud, mostly, in instances, if you still use instances and you're in the old clouds and uh, way of doing things and you don't use like Kubernetes or lambdas, etc., forensics is really minimal. If you didn't enable logs in advance and you didn't keep the logs in advance and you didn't look at network, uh, CloudTrail, VPC flow logs, all of those stuff before, you sometimes come and you have zero data. It's all you can come and take a full disk image Mm -hmm. Well, in EC2s, but it doesn't really help that much. Like it used to help with Windows environments, etc. And most orgs today are even moving from instances like Windows environments, etc. Uh, so you have to think through before the instance much more than you used to do in all the environments. Yeah, well, actually, you took my second question, which was about how organizations are uh, are they well prepared? Yeah, so I guess. Uh, I guess the enterprises are more prepared, but if you haven't prepared, you, there is very limited that you can do. If you, if you haven't activated CloudTrail or anything like that, there is very limited forensics that you can do. The, the DevOps, SecOps, um, you know, approach of some smaller organizations and new, new organizations is usually better. When we get there, they, they look at the Amazon best practices, they enable some logs. The major catastrophes we're seeing is enterprises that try to use hybrid approach and the same people who used to manage their enterprise infrastructure is their DevOps and they kind of changed and they're using their whole habits in the cloud. And that's what we see most of the major catastrophes to date. Um, that's usually the problem. Okay, that's a topic for another uh, complete episode of how to prepare the cloud incidents. But here we let's talk about the incident itself. Uh, so this was the malicious insider. We gain access to the vault, which is like the most critical thing, and it doesn't even need to get access to the vault. It's simply snapshot it. A classic uh, a cloud attack. Uh, sometimes uh, the attackers are not malicious, and sometimes you are fighting governments and uh, foreign uh, and foreign forces. Let's talk about uh, the incidents with Iran that you were involved a little bit. Yeah, not a little bit. Uh, it was, you know, it was. Um... There were a few major incidents that we have dealt with in the past year and a half and the almost two years. I think one of the uh, uh, one of the initial uh, incidents of the company was one of uh, it's an attack of uh, muddy water, uh, Iranian uh, uh, services. Uh, I think what I want to because I can have a you know a presentation of two hours just around those attacks. I think what really interesting to me is that public private you know, organizations are being targeted heavily by a foreign, you know, intelligence entity, somewhat publicly. It's like everybody knows it's Iran. Everybody knows like they're attacking companies, but the organizations are somewhat left, you know, alone in some place. They need they need to hire themselves companies like us, which truly were nothing but cheap. Um, you know, we of course we do our job well, etc. But we do cost a lot to organizations. Uh, think about it. The way I see it is, I don't know. I said it to one of our customers. Let's say I have uh, a shop in one of the malls in Tel Aviv, and Iranian threat actors 
intelligence, you know, ex uh, Iranian army are jumping into the store, you know, you know, cover, face cover, they look like they are, you know, armed robbery. They steal the, the steal money, they trash the place, and they even leave like a sticker, Iran was here, fuck you, sorry for the language. And then they leave and, and the police say, hey, you just, you know, file a complaint. You know, that, that's the way it looks like on the cyber side. You know, actively Iran threat actors are operating in the Israel space against public companies, like, you know, uh, uh, private companies. And there's nothing much anybody does about that. They don't even officially claim that this is Iran, you know, the Israeli doc- cyber doctrine and the Israeli government, etc. And so, so no, no matter no matter how experienced uh, CISO are and how, no matter how many budgets do you have, there's no way that you can take on an entire uh, nation. Uh, uh, not necessarily. There's a bit of mm-hmm. dissonance here. Because they try to hide the track and not officially say it's Iran, they are not using their full capability to some extent. Uh, so most of the attacks are actually trying to show that they are kind of like mom and pop stools. Uh, they self-develop. They don't using their full capabilities. However, in some organization that we have inspected after a breach, we've seen multiple intrusions by the same threat actors, which then they use much more sophisticated tools. So for example, if in the main breach where they encrypted, well, not exactly encrypted, wiped, uh, kind of a camouflage to, uh, camouflage to look like ransomware incidents. In the earlier breaches, they actually looked for military projects. Some of them I knew the names and some, and I was shocked that they know about the names. And some of them I didn't know, and I was happy I didn't know those names. Uh, (laughs) But it it was really, you know, it was devastating to me to find that. Like my team researched, we look at artifacts, we carved some forensics artifact. We actually seized the, the type of intelligence those organizations are trying to gather, uh, like they try to from those organizations. Um, and then when they do the ransom, you can see that they didn't really try to negotiate. They didn't try to get money. Only thing they try to do is to make Israel look bad. Doesn't even care which organization, you know, it is. Like this incident, we were not involved in that, but you could have seen nobody really wanted money. They just wanted to shame Israel. Uh, okay, like... for our audience, let's talk a bit about uh, this incident. Um, just for to explain, how do we realize that it's not a regular hacker group? How do we? Why do we think it's a it's in a foreign government? Okay, so uh, one of the key mistakes this group did, um, we have investigated uh, an incident regarding uh, uh, an African uh, nation. We were got mm-hmm. called on an incident. And we've investigated it, and that led back to Iran at that time. Infrastructure, the type of tools, the targeted uh, people were uh, exiled, Iranian, uh, anti-Iranian. So it was quite sure it was Iran all the way from from the technology, from the TTPs, the tactic tools and procedures, from the IOCs, uh, indicators of compromise, etc. And then the attacking tal, basically all the shipment companies in Israel, basically uh, an attack which we assume Iranian uh, state actors tried to uh, damage the shipment prior to the vaccines shipment days. Um, and what they did is take there, they merged, they used the infrastructure of 
uh, uh, what they did in the attack against uh, African uh, states. And in Israel, they use the same infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So we can match that it's the same organization, it's the same attack threat group. Uh, and on top of that, in later incident, a few weeks later, when there was a payment made by an Israeli organization, that Bitcoin payment to an Iranian exchange called Exconium. Now, you have to understand that in order to use uh, an account in Exconium, which sits in Iran, you have to have a, a, an ID and passport, and you have to get approved from the government. They don't approve anybody. So it was quite clear that you know, someone, at least a contractor for the government is doing that. Um, quite severe, we, we combined of that and Profero released a tweet at that time where we have an infrastructure, we have the money uh, trail and we know it's Iran. Uh, that was the first, one, the first time we could have an 100% guarantee that we are looking at Iran. And then I think Chen came with a research at Clear Sky and others. Um, but uh, but it was quite clear that it's Iran at the time. Okay, uh, so it's later... always mis it's always mistakes that the attacker is doing, uh, not covering the track or some kind of an opsec uh, mistakes uh, that they're doing using the same uh, tactics and tools. Yeah, it's it's hard to switch tactics between each attack. You know, you have mm -hmm. to do it on a very targeted organization. I guess if the Iranians are attacking the you know, I don't want to say that, like, I know one of the more interesting facilities, they probably use a very dedicated tactics. But the, when they have a basically an info op campaign against Israeli companies, they publish checks. It's the less crucial things to, to be discovered. One of the, I don't know if it's rumors or not, one of the theories that I heard is that uh, uh, the Iranians started outsourcing some of the attacks into, uh, into hacker groups just uh, using them as uh, mercenaries in order to perform those attacks. Do you think, uh, what do you think about that? It's not a theory. You can go on my private blog mm -hmm. and there's photos mm -hmm. and names of the people they have. Um, so it's not a theory at all. Uh, by the way, Israel does that. You can, you can think of a couple of companies that I'm not gonna name that does it for Israel. US does mm -hmm. it, um, Shadow Brokers League, all of those, China does it, France does it. Uh, with our campaign. So it's not like the, the unique, by the way, nation state attacks are not the part of just the evil, the evil exile of Korea, Russia, Iran, China. It's also been done in, in Western countries. However, Western countries are less likely to attack a private company, even in if it's in uh, a foreign uh, you know, active state of war country because the permissions and approval are much longer and, and more uh, um, well thought before. Uh, so that's why we see more attacks in against Western entities by uh, China, Iran, etc. Uh, they can even you know look at source code uh, from big uh, you know big companies. They will try and. Uh, infiltrate infrastructure. Western intelligence is a bit less uh, easy on the trigger. They do it. Um, you look at Kaspersky attack by Israel. Uh, there's other uh, examples of that. Um, Lebanon Bank uh, by certain uh, Western uh, uh, 
uh, Western entities, um, but it's it's happening less frequently. Okay, very interesting topic. Uh, let's move to the further example that we're talking about, how to deal with supply chain attack, like the Casilla uh, attacks. Can you tell us a little bit about this incident and your involvement in this? Yeah, cool. So supply chain attack has become a very big issue. It was always there. I remember an attack in 2013 that came from, you know, a supply chain. Everybody remember the target uh, attack that came from apparently one of their refrigerator supporters when they had an RDP connection. Uh, but today it's, it's coming very big, I think, with a big boost in the cloud. So, for example, one of the major cloud incidents uh, that involved uh, supply chain was Kotkov. Kotkov uh, is, a, is, a, is a, a code inspection and monitoring uh, software that gives you a Docker when you, you can connect it to your GitHub. Uh, they have thousands of, uh, of uh, customers around the world. And basically what you do, you give them access, the, the Docker that sits on your in, in infrastructure, you give it in the environment variable access to your code, to your GitHub. What the, the, the attackers of SoloWinds, uh, Russian FSB probably, uh, they have injected a very simple line of code in the, 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 the builder of the Docker. And it basically just sends to their server, the environment variables. And the environment variables usually have read access to your entire GitHub infrastructure. Also shows how tough the cloud is, where you think you give environment variable or a key to a certain company, and in the end of the day, someone can just download your entire code. Um, after that, uh, there was the Cassia incident where basically what happened there, think about it. If you look at the old enterprise way, uh, there is an agent that manages all your endpoints, disaster recovery locations, management, in production infrastructure, employees, have all of your endpoint. And that's how you deploy patch, you deploy security software, you deploy different types of uh, tools, etc. At the same time, all over the world, attackers use the vulnerability that later we discovered was known by Cassia, and they deploy the ransom on all of those organization endpoints almost simultaneously. I think there was around 10,000 organizations that got it at the same time. We got called by 12. Some of them had backups. Some of them, the Cassia was not, uh, was detected and indeed really uh, not the Cassia, the R-Evil ransom was detected. By the way, the infrastructure used by R-Evil was known. For example, some of the organization we protect already had those indicators, uh, the IPs and domains used by uh, but even that will stop. Some organization called us, and you know I, I invented the term cyber kadisha uh, at the time. <laughs> uh, we actually call ourselves cyberlands because um, you know we come and you try to save. That was an incident what we call cyber kadisha. The backups were encrypted. The the, the well, disaster. Yeah, for uh, for our foreign listeners, I mean, uh, <laughs> is like the. Yeah, I, I like ambulance. It's easier to translate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kadisha, Kadisha is when you keep pick up people, people who died. So that's why we call it like that. 
uh, it was tough. You, uh, you came here to clear the bodies. That's the idea. Exactly. Uh, sorry for the hard language. Uh, it's kind of an internal joke I should keep to myself. Uh, anyhow, uh, basically the disaster recovery was encrypted. Uh, the R zone, the, the, the backups were encrypted and the tapes for some reason did not work, not because of the attack, they just didn't really test them. Um, so there was nothing you could have done other than completely rebuild. On top of that, because of the major, um, the major publication that incident got, our even was shut down. So there was no one even to negotiate for keys. It's not even you could mm -hmm. have paid. There was no option. Just the only thing left to do is to completely rebuild the organization from scratch, which that what happened. Um, after a few weeks, I think even month, uh, Cassia, you know, fell off a bus. Uh, they got the key somehow and they developed it, they delivered it to the organization, to our organization, except some very key data that was kept that maybe we can break it or a key will pop up. As I've seen, the organization just was already restored anyway from scratch. Um, they did uh, decrypt the, the data, the database, and some of the critical data, and put it in a new uh, location, uh, but and the new machines, etc. But it shows how devastating it can be. Your MSSP, which should be securing you, using the software which should manage your security and patch level and deploy it all around your organization, including disaster recovery and backups, etc., is used to deploy ransomware. Um, it's crazy. And, you know, cloud yeah. approach, cloud first, it shows some of the mm -hmm. things that were probably not being able to do a few years ago. So uh, the reason that the backups and disaster recovery were encrypted is because the same software was running on top of all servers. So everything was... Uh, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Think about it for old enterprises way. Your SCCM is being deploying ransomware. Yeah, so this is amazing attack. Uh, any ideas how uh, did uh, the encryption key arrive to the uh, Cassia? Fell off a bus. <laughs> Fell off a bus. I don't know. I okay. have a couple of assumptions. I don't know. And what, what do you think happened to the attack group? I mean, is it because it was so big they got frightened and simply uh, it, uh, took things off and they left? Or uh, maybe the, the Russian I, authorities figured that they were too, too much of a big thing? No, I, I have a theory about it. Um, during the, the, the few days before the Cassia attack, we have seen a major increase in our evil activity by all affiliates and not just the Cassia. Uh, what we believe is that Cassia had some kind of uh, internal affiliate program, you know, the less big bust uh, approach. Like, hey guys, do whatever you need to do. Like we give you a better uh, discounted rate or, uh, you know, this is your less like chance to do something. We are moving away. Uh, and they had a big bust. Uh, we've seen that in many organizations, not just the ones affected by Cassia, in the days coming to the Cassia incident, uh, and then they shut down. Um, so I think it's kind of like a, a way to move to a new um, to a new infrastructure, a new name, kind of like plausible deniability. This is not us. You know, our even is getting too much fame. Um, we believe there is cross correlation between groups like 
Defray 777, the one that just eat uh, Gigabyte. Uh, as soon as our river closed, the same affiliates of our evil are being deploying Defray. So they're moving somewhere else. There are also Black Matter, by the way, some code in the R evil list uh, variants had reference to Black Live Matter. Uh, so we think it's a kind of like a, a tip to their affiliate saying this is us. Um, mm -hmm. So so it's kind of like a, you know last sales the shop is closing. This is this is our it's a theory you know it's not a yeah. hard fact but that's what we think. Okay, so basically what you're saying is the tools are moving around between uh, the different groups uh, and it's not like somebody really disappears without a trace. They simply change the name, change a little bit of the logos, change the variable names and move it on, moving it to a different uh, group. It's the same, it's like endpoint companies, you know, the main people just moving <laughs> between them. Uh, you, look, you go to Defcon and you see the same person and one day they work in CrowdStrike and one day they work in Sentinel-1 and then the next Defcon they work in Carbon Black it's around the same thing. <laughs> they probably have their own. They probably have their own conventions. Excellent, excellent comparison. So, Omri, this was really interesting. One of the more interesting episodes that we uh, that we did. Yeah. Uh, indeed, yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Start, starting from the malicious insider all the way to the uh, pay to key and the Iranian ransomware and. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the story of Kasia, which is really an amazing story and really tells us uh, how uh, future attacks gonna look like. So uh, hopefully uh, you, you continue to do incident response and you gather more interesting story and we'll have you here again for more interesting uh, 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 IR stories. I'll, I'll be happy next time to speak how to prevent incidents, uh, yeah. how to be more ready than, than having more talks about a... Uh, uh, we did that. Uh, we did. I think. I think it will be good for organizations uh, to look at what Definitely. they can do. And not, yeah, yeah. So Definitely. We, we we will do that, uh, Omri. So, <laughs> <laughs> really, thank you, uh, Omri, for your time, uh, and also Moshe, uh, and thank you to all our listeners. And until the next one, uh, thank you. Bye bye. Cheers. Have a good bye. one.